This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is happening, gang? We have got a big one for you today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pulling. In today's episode, building on what we did last week, where we built the roster to 90, in this week's show, we're going to go through the cut down to 53. And this is a really interesting episode because we truly got to pick Bill's brain in terms of how you view that roster you want to take with you into the season, how that works from building your practice squad, how you protect players, how you protect personnel that you don't want being picked on other teams, what you're looking for at camp. And I think the most interesting thing is the evaluation process. We learned a lot about how Bill approached when you evaluate players, how that evaluation worked, how that information was organized within the club. I mean, this is truly a unique window into Bill's brain to learn about what his roster construction philosophy was, how it was implemented, and how it was actually put into practice. So sit back, relax, and get ready. This is the Inside Football Podcast. Podcast with Bill Polian, and this is the cut to 53. All right. Well, hey, guys, we are excited about this one today. Last week got a lot of really good response in terms of building out that roster to 90. And in this week's episode, we're going to kind of pare it down uh, to 53. And so to that end, Rick, why don't you kick us into the pod today? So that process of winnowing back down from the 90 to the 53 begins with the first two phrases, phases of voluntary off-season activity followed by OTAs. Bill, tell us what goes on in each of those three phases and what you're looking for. Well, in, uh, in the off-season program, um, what you're trying to do is, is build strength and conditioning uh, that will will take you through the training camp and the, and the regular season. You're trying to build a base. And uh, for new players who are new to the team, the, the strength and conditioning coaches get with them, put them through a series of tests to determine uh, where they're where they're strong and 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 where they're where they need work, and they develop individual uh, strength and conditioning programs for each player. The returning players go through a minimal test uh, just to see where they're at, but they've they've got all of the data on those guys, so they they you know they adjust as necessary, and so you, you spend we we always tried to get six weeks in because the physiologists tell you that that's the best thing to do. Sometimes you can't because you bump up against the calendar. Uh, and of course, when we were in the playoffs, which we were out of the 10, 10 years in a row, and I think 11 out of the 13, we were there. Um, you, you put yourself in a situation where you try to bring those guys in as late as possible. And, and we, we often brought the veterans in 
much later than the new players. So the new players got more attention um, and, and, and get them inculcated into our culture. Um, that's the first phase of it. The second phase of it is on the field. And, uh, and, and that, uh, I don't know a general manager who doesn't cringe when they go out on the field because there's nobody to play. You're not getting ready to play anybody. You're installing uh, the offensive, defensive, and special team systems that you're going to reinstall in training camp. And so it's really a dress rehearsal without pads, but you, you, you get injuries. And there was nothing more frustrating for me, and I know with virtually every general manager I spoke about, we'd all call and commiserate with one another during OTAs uh, about uh, how terrible it was to lose players in OTAs. Um, but you have injuries because uh, the young guys are trying to make an impression. The coaches want them to go up tempo. Um, it, it takes a very, very strong and, and, and very uh, secure head coach to dial things down. Um, new coaches come in. They want to show what they can do. It's just it, your heart's in your mouth every single day you go out there hoping that you don't get a starter or a key player hurt. Um, fortunately, uh, we came through most of the OTAs because of, of Tony Dungy's security and level-headedness. Uh, and, and people like the late, great Howard Mudd, who would often say when things began to ramp up a little too much, hey, we're not playing the Colts this week. Um, <laughs> we'd make sure that that we got through it without any significant injuries. But every once in a while, somebody goes down and, and you know, your heart's in your throat. I remember one, uh, this was early in Tony's, in Tony's tenure. Um, some young DB climbed all over uh, Marvin Harrison on a downfield route. And, and a young DB coach was applauding the effort, and, and I, I just couldn't help myself. I just started yelling, stay off the receivers. You know, <laughs> you just, the, the guy's one of the best receivers in football, and, and, and you know, you're trying to knock him down in a, in a, in a meaningless, it, it's not a meaningless practice, but there's nothing at stake in the practice. So um, it, it's, a, it's a rough time. Uh, and as I say, all you're really doing is installing what you're going to reinstall anyway at the start of training camp. Uh, I, I'm anxious to see, this is an editorial comment, <laughs> but I'm anxious to see what becomes of OTAs after this season because we didn't have any. And, and the football on opening day was just as good <laughs> as it was with them. I was just going to ask you, even back then, uh, you were so conscious of that. I remember us talking about it so many times. Did you ever think the trade-off just isn't worth it? I mean, we don't. We may not. I mean, we're going to reinstall this stuff later. Uh, the, the, the you know the injury risk is too great, especially since you know we went pretty deep into into the year with being in the playoffs. Did you ever think you know screw OTAs? Well, yes, often, but uh, I. I I think we're reaching, at least I am, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching an equilibrium here where I think hopefully we'll go in the future. Uh, if you talk to baseball people, they'll tell you that um, the position players can get ready in three weeks. 
the reason that you have six or seven weeks of spring training is to get the pitchers ready. Um, and, and I think this is, we, we've proven uh, in this off season, which there wasn't one, <laughs> that you can get the big people ready. Uh, you can get the big people ready and by and large, the defensive backs ready uh, in about three weeks, four weeks. You, you need two preseason games at a minimum for conditioning purposes. The, the injuries that have happened decide we don't have any. We need long term statistics on that. But you can get the, you need two preseason games and you need at least three weeks in front of that to get ready. Um, but. The reason for OTAs is for the quarterbacks and the receivers, the passing game, and to some degree, the defensive backfield. So maybe if you turned it into seven on seven for six practices or eight practices rather than 12, you might hit a reasonably good equilibrium. The quarterbacks and receivers do need the extra work. That, that's, that's the benefit of OTAs. In terms of team building, though, just in terms of like building camaraderie and those kinds of things, are OTAs like a good tool for that? Or are they more of just kind of, hey, we're here, we're getting our work in, uh, let's get through this? Well, anytime the team's together, it's helpful. Uh, but uh, if you're away at training camp, that's really where you build the camaraderie, where you're with each other 24 hours a day. Uh, but, but certainly anytime you're in the building, it's helpful. And I'm not one who does not want the players in the building. I think the classroom work and absolutely the strength and conditioning work is critical. Uh, that That's not you – know, we did essentially three weeks of strength and conditioning work and uh, this this offseason for, you know, for good – and sufficient reason, but it's not enough. Sort of an uh, early, not necessarily audible, but just something that just kind of popped into my mind. I mean, you see so many guys not going to OTAs and kind of doing their strength and conditioning at home or at these other facilities. Is it your sense that the guys probably get their best work kind of at OTAs, at the facility from a strength and conditioning process? Or do you think there's some guys who are better suited kind of working at their own kind of programs that they develop for themselves, either back at home or uh, at some of these other facilities? No, I, I, anytime they're away from the, the facility where they work, I think they, they're losing something. And sometimes you're losing a lot depending on who the trainer is you're working with. He might be working at cross purposes to, uh, you know, what the strength and conditioning coach at the team wants. You saw that surface a little bit in New England with TB12 a year ago. Um, so, uh, uh, no, I think they they need to be in the building and they need to be working on strength and conditioning and they need to be working on individual skills, which you you can do without a, a, a you know, a, 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 a team-oriented uh team on the field approach. Um, definitely the receivers and quarterbacks need the work. Um, so there's a, there's a, a, an equilibrium you can reach here. Um, I think it, you know, coaches absolutely, I mean, it, they would give up OTAs, they give up family members before they give up OTAs, some of them. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's going to be a hard go, but <laughs> but but not Bob Sanders. We're not giving him up. No, no. I think there's I think there's an equilibrium. Uh, yeah, there somewhere. Uh, but the bottom line is that during OTAs, 
uh, there was a rule. We had a rule. No evaluations. This is teaching, learning, rehearsing. No evaluations. What about at mini camps? At mini camps, are you doing more evaluating? No, no. Our, our hard and fast rule. And it's interesting. Coach Levy had the very same rule. And Tony and Coach Levy had only a, 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 a passing acquaintanceship with one another. And, and the only commonality was Bill Walsh. Um, and, and that was Tony was only with Bill Walsh for a year and Bill Walsh was only with Marv for a year. So it, it was peripheral at best. But they both saw the evaluation process exactly the same. Uh, no evaluation until I have no formal evaluation until after the first preseason game. And, uh, and, and, you know, not to say the coaches didn't talk and the scouts didn't talk and everybody has an opinion, but not formally and, and not within the context of picking the squad until after the first preseason game. Right. So that's a perfect segue because that takes us to – the next step, which is training camp. Now, your MO was to speak to the team three times a year. And the opening night of training camp was one of them. I think what you would say to them on that occasion is a great lens through which we could view this winnowing process. So could you, can you share the, the, the Bill Polian first night of training camp speech with us? Yeah, well, there were two parts to it. The first would be would would speak to something that had happened the previous year that we need, that I thought needed to be a point of emphasis, and I would clear that with Tony in advance. So one year I spoke about critical efficiency. Uh, there are you know five, six, seven plays in a game where you have to be efficient. You have to be critical. Those are critical times, and you have to be efficient in order to win the game. Um, so that's one part of it. The second part of it was universal. That occurred every year. And that was to say to the rookies and to remind the veterans, uh, to remind the rookies that from this day forward, it doesn't matter where you were drafted, whether you were the first guy in the draft or the last person signed uh, in, in, in collegiate free agency, everybody was equal and the best 53 make the team. There are no sacred cows. Granted, there are players with big contracts, and, and obviously we're, we're not about to uh, trade guys that are pro bowlers. We're not stupid. But the bottom line is everybody has an equal chance to make this team. So just because a guy's drafted in the first round doesn't mean he's a lock to make the team. Uh, just because you signed as a street-free agent or the last guy signed uh, on, on the, uh, the, the last day of the draft uh, doesn't mean that 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 you won't get a chance. Everybody's going to have the same the same chance to uh, 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 perform, and we're going to pick the best fifty three, and we have a system to do that. And uh, and if you have any questions about that, ask Gary Brackett. He'll he'll be glad to explain to you how he came <laughs> in and uh, how he made the team and 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 became defensive captain. Can you talk? Can you talk about that a little? The Gary Brackett example. Well, Gary was literally the last guy signed <clears throat> on Sunday afternoon of the draft. And I think we gave him $2,000 or something like that. He came in. Um, he, he impressed us mightily in, in training camp and in the preseason. And then he had to leave to donate uh, bone marrow to his brother, 
who was uh, suffering from uh, leukemia. And that, as you might imagine, is a terribly debilitating process. And so, uh, you, you know, we had a decision to make at that point. Do we, do we waive him? And because he wasn't, chances are he wasn't coming back that year. And, uh, and Tony said, oh, no, 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 no. He, he, he impressed us uh, more than enough to make this team. Let's put him on IR and we'll bring him in in the offseason and bring him back, let him condition uh, get through the the process. I don't. I, mean, I don't know whether we actually carried him on IR or put him on the practice squad. I can't remember right now what the. But he wasn't on the active roster, and and yeah, it could have been PUP. We brought him back, uh, let him get his strength back. Um, he didn't make much of a contribution his rookie year, but the second year he came back and 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 became the you know pretty soon became the starter at middle linebacker and stayed there for the rest of his career. I would also imagine that, especially with Tony, and and though you don't say it, um, I'm sure that this uh, self-sacrificial aspect of what he was doing had to show you about his character and let you know that not only was a guy who was surprising athletically, but this is a guy you wanted on the team from a character standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. No question about that. So circling back to something you had mentioned earlier kind of related to saving some of those evaluations until after the first preseason game in terms of early on in camp how hard is it for you as just a talent evaluator to kind of a do that just in sort of uh from a logic standpoint and then two what is kind of the logic behind keeping that evaluation until after the first preseason game like is it so you can install it see give everybody a fair shot and then now that you played a little bit you can start to evaluate everybody yeah all of the above plus the process of evaluation um we had um a process where everybody evaluated practice coaches players scouts every day um then we'd go back and watch the film at night and and evaluate that um so every day we had a file on virtually every player um so there was evaluating evaluation going on. It was not, just not going on in a formal way, um, stacking the depth chart, if you will. At some point in time, the league put in some silly rule that you had to put out a depth chart the second week of camp or something like that, and uh, it just it just jogged my memory. I, I would remind everybody during my talk, the depth chart that comes out means nothing. The league requires us to do it. We just tell the PR office to throw names against the wall and, you know, we'll figure. We know Peyton Manning's the quarterback. Marvin Harrison's the wide receiver. <laughs> He's probably not going to be QB, too. <laughs> yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're not going to worry about the rest of it. Um, and it doesn't mean anything. So um, the the process went on. And then after the first preseason game, when you get to see them live in action against a, another opponent, in a game setting, now you get a, a an oftentimes a completely different view of the player. Players who who have shown in practice that get you all excited that you think may have a future go in the game and fall on their face. And and guys that you thought were not progressing very quickly go in the game and all of a sudden, particularly on special teams, they light people up and 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 prove that, that that they have a future. So that's why we waited. And then there was a we had a very structured process about how that evaluation went on. 
which uh, if you're interested in that, you didn't catch last week's episode. We talked about that. But, but you know, it always struck me, and I don't think we've ever discussed this, that, that there was another value in waiting until the first game, not only the difference between, a, you know, a, uh, outside of the game issue and playing in a game, but that by letting each person keep his own counsel, you don't get any cross-contamination. You know, you go into that with everybody's own pure take so that some rookie coach, when they once they hear Bill Polian opine, to me, that very well could influence, you know, they don't want to speak up, they don't want to say it, but, you know, by letting everybody just not talk then and and you always let everybody else speak before you did, you got, you know, their, their own honest-to-goodness uh, opinion about each guy without it being affected for fear of what somebody else higher in the ranks was going to say. Yeah, uh, you're right about that. If there's a funny story that surrounds that little bit different circumstance, but nonetheless the same issue. When Tom Telesco became director of player personnel, I happened to wander by his office just before the December meetings were getting underway when the, the, first, the scouts first set the, the college board. And and I said, what time are your, your meetings, Tom? And he said, oh, we're going to start at 830. And I said, oh, OK, I'll, I'll pop in. And uh, who, what are you starting with, quarterbacks? Yeah, okay. So I went back to my office, and he came in about 10 minutes later, a little bit sheepishly. And He's a soft-spoken guy anyways. But he he, he said, Bill, I, you know, I, I don't quite know how to say this, but I, I'd rather you weren't in the meetings. And I said, <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> and he said, because the scouts know the guys that you've looked at. Um, if you ask a question, it could be construed as, as, you know, putting your thumb on the scale. Not, not that you, you would do that, but, but it's how they, they think. So it, it's better if we do this uh, with, without anybody else in the, from management in the room. I said, that, that's okay. I get it. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the inference is, uh, you know, more important than the implication. So uh, speaking of that, you mentioned in passing something I always found very interesting. In everything that happens in training camp, you get two looks. You know, reminded me of the old, is it Memorex or is it live, right? Because you get out there on the field, you're, you're there every day. You can stand in different places, see different things. And then you get to watch it again on film where you can watch the detail and see what – tell us what each one of those things uh, allows you to do better than the other and what are the weaknesses. Why, why the two ways and, you know, what you, what you can glean better and then what you can't and therefore the other makes up for it. Well, the two are complementary. When you're on the field, unless you happen to be way up high in, in one of the – one of the video lifts or a press box, if if there's a high enough uh, venue, um, you, you get a, a narrow aperture. You know, there's, there's a narrow view of things. You, your eyes only and your peripheral vision only extends so far. Um, so you can stand behind a, a drill. And if it's a one-on-one -on -one drill, you, you get every single bit of it, every nuance. If... Um, and you can hear, listen to the coaching point. 
if it's a team drill, you, you can you know what the play is. You can concentrate on the point of attack, or you can concentrate on a player that you want to help, uh, evaluate, and you you get to hear the coaching points. That's very valuable because you you know what they're asking of the player and whether he's doing it or not. Um, when you look at the tape, now you get a, a almost a three hundred sixty degree uh, view of it. Uh, certainly one hundred and eighty degrees. And so you're, you're seeing everybody and you can slow it down in real time on the field. You have to be pretty quick in terms of, uh, uh, of, of getting an opinion and, and watching and seeing what happened. Um, just like an official has to be have to have quick eyes. That's that's the term they use in officiating um, it, with the tape. You don't have to. You can slow it down. You can rewind it. You can do all 22 players on a given play if you wish. Um, so it's just a much broader and wider and deeper look than you get from the field. But the field is still important because you hear, you know the play, you hear the coaching, um, you, you see how the player reacts. Uh, you, you can see all the nuance of, of, of whether one arm is stronger than the other that you, that you don't necessarily get on, on uh, tape, for example, with an offensive lineman. Uh, you, you can't really see that on tape. You, you, you can see it up close and personal. There's a couple other things I think you and I have talked about over the years about um, being, out, being out on the field. Uh, you know, one was, and, and it's just a slight variation on what you said before, you know, the guy does something and you actually hear the full correction from the coach. The guy takes his next rep and you can really see, is he, is he coachable in the sense that he picks it up right away or is he the kind of guy – who has to be told three or four times before he gets it. And the other thing was the, the non-football stuff. Who's the leader on the field? Who's the guy who, you know, who uh, gets everybody excited, who rallies everybody and all that kind of thing. So there's, the, we talked about, you know, you know, the human dynamic of what you get when you're out there on the field, right? Yeah. It, it, the, the leadership part of it is, is, is more nuanced, uh, Yelling is not a is not necessarily a, a signature of leadership, but uh, in terms of uh, of understanding how quickly they pick things up, yes, I mean you can you can tell that um, both both mentally and kinesthetically, and it, it's helpful. I mean just to hear the coaching training camp is two practices a day, essentially for three weeks, so. You're getting an accumulation of data on each and every player, both live and on tape, which gives you at the end of those three weeks, entering the first preseason game, a broad overview of who the player is and what he is. And then it you, now you're deciding after the first preseason game and even after that, whether he can take it to the to the game field when, as they say, the lights go on. Bill, one question that I think we haven't sort of thought about from this angle. I mean, obviously the, there's the implications related to player injuries and sort of player safety related to the reduced padded practices in training camp and those kinds of things. From an evaluator's perspective, do you think some of these changes to the CBA have made it maybe harder to evaluate players through camp kind of headed into that first preseason game? Or is there no real difference? Um, I don't think there's any real difference evaluatively. Um, I would like to have four preseason games for that purpose, but I'm as obstinate as uh, 
as the coaches that I sometimes criticize about OTAs. You know? <laughs> the more the more looks you get in the preseason, the better you can evaluate. So, um, uh, you know, I, I just think we certainly could use him. I hope we settle at three. Um, I, I, you know, people have asked my opinion over the years, and I've said we can we can we can live with three. Um, and, and still get good evaluations and good preparation. And 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 that's what you, you get out of the preseason. Um, I've often said, joking or half-jokingly, that the only people who, who dislike preseason are players for obvious reasons, veteran players particularly for obvious reasons, and the media, because instead of games uh, being at the beach on, on, on Saturday night, and having an off day on Sunday, they're having to cover games. And if you've ever been in a press box in a preseason game, particularly on the East Coast, um, you know, where the, the summer is fleeting and, and, and the best of it is, is being frittered away in press boxes and, quote, meaningless cl- games, close quote. There are a lot of grouchy media people there. <laughs> They'd much rather be on the golf course or at the beach, as opposed to the media people in spring training and baseball when it's 20 degrees and sleeting in New York, they wax poetic about, or Pittsburgh, they wax poetic about the glory of the green grass and the, the sparkling blue sky in Florida or Arizona. <laughs> so You can't discredit fans either. There's nothing worse than uh, paying full lift ticket to sit in FedEx Field on a Thursday night when literally no one's playing and you're going home sick. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Yeah, and especially once you know uh, the the price of tickets skyrocketed. You know, it's one thing when you're paying twenty bucks in the old days, but you know when it was hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I, I can't think of. I mean, other than absolute fanatics, everybody was pissed off that they had to pay that money. You know, you didn't you didn't have the option. No, I don't want the preseason. Sorry, if you want season tickets, you got to pay for the preseason games. Nobody liked it. Hey, in COVID, I would kill to be in the stadium right now, but I still hate preseason games. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of preseason games, so kind of headed into those first that first preseason game, are there any things that you're – I mean, obviously, you're not formally doing your analysis, but are there any things that you're really concentrating on kind of in evaluating the roster headed into that first preseason game in terms of how guys are preparing themselves for that? Well, I mean, you you don't other than somebody who's not doing the job on the practice field, which is rather rare. Um, you would you, you're not worried about how they're preparing. You wor- you're worrying about how they perform on on game night. Um, the bottom line is that Tony and I would get together with the coordinators, or Tony would get together with the coordinators and say, you know, who of the young guys do we want to get? some work for in this game um you know what what kind of pecking order do we want to have and they'd put it together roughly and and so the first preseason game the starters would play a series and uh and and then they're out and and then then the second group comes in and that consists of veteran backups and and some young players that you 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 want to take a, a good hard look at usually the top draft choices top three or four draft choices maybe somebody else who's shown themselves to be exceptional during the the, the ramp up period during the camp period uh, and then they get 
the rest of the first half, and then everybody else on the squad gets to play in the second half. And then at the end of, of, of that game, we go through our evaluation. Bill, before you do it, let me, let me, let me ask a specific thing about the evaluations. Because uh, this is the first time sort of the wise men get together. And would you take it through – uh, that, you know, that there's two separate meetings and who's in the meetings. And just, I think this is a great chance for now you to take our listeners inside the room, if you would, when you, yeah. not just what happens, but give them the feel for it. You know, how the, you know, how you go around, uh, how uh, opinions are exchanged and so on, because this is something nobody ever sees. Well, we, we had a very specific process that we developed um, that we followed every single year. And the the first part of it was that the coaches would look at the film individually and then as platoons, and they would grade the players. Um, the pro scouting staff would do the same. And the college scouting staff, who usually is scheduled to leave um, prior to the first preseason game because the college uh, calendar has changed so much, uh, would have filed reports based on their camp evaluations. And each scout took an individual position and evaluated that position. We didn't use the scouting, uh, the scouts evaluate, college scouts evaluations um, to cut the squad, but we used it as a means of determining um, how good a job we were doing in the draft based on the evaluations they had in camp and and then how the player actually did with us later on. That would be a kind of a self-scout for our, our college scouting staff. So those would get filed and, uh, and, and put into the player's permanent record, but it didn't factor into the evaluation, make the team process. Um, so after the pro people uh, and myself went through the film and made our evaluations and the coaches made their evaluations then Tony would get together with the coaches and I would sit in on that meeting and they would evaluate every player uh, after the first preseason game most of the time 80 percent 85 percent of the time in that meeting is spent talking about new players uh, you know the old guys you know what they're capable of doing um, unless somebody has an injury that's bothering him or uh, or, you know, has, has some marked fall off in his play. There's not a lot of time spent on, on, you know, the starter. So, for example, Clyde Christensen, our quarterback coach, would say, you know, Peyton wasn't as sharp as he, he normally was, but I don't, I don't know that he had his head in the, in, in, in the book as much as he does. Um, he's fine in practice. Everything's good. Uh, it was a decent outing. Uh, no problem. And then, he spent a lot of time talking about Jim Sorge. So uh, uh, that's how that's how that that first meeting went. And at the end of that first meeting, Tony would uh, have the coaches line them up by position. We had a big board, big whiteboard with magnetic tags on it, which had the player's name and his his information, height, weight, speed, um, three cone drill. And, uh, 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 pers you know, uh, personality grade, if you will, psychological grade, and uh, and then um, his contract status. 
And so we would line those guys up by position. And so obviously Peyton Manning would be first, but, you know, did Jim Sorge show enough to be second? Uh, or is he third behind Mark Rippon? Uh, that discussion would actually take place with the coaches, and I was in the room taking notes. And uh, I took copious notes. I rarely said a word. I just sat there and listened. Tony w would ask questions from time to time. But most of the time, he, he would just let the coaches give their evaluations. He would take notes as well. And then they would have some discussions about how they wanted to line them up. So if, for example, Rip was not there the same time Sorgi was, I don't think, but, but I'm just using it as, a, as an example. Um, Tony would say to Clyde and to, to uh, Tom Moore, our offensive coordinator, um, or I'm sorry, Jim Caldwell actually was the quarterback coach at the time. He would say to, to Jim, um, do you want to give Rippon um, more work next week or would you rather see more of Sorgi? And then Jim would make that decision and and tell us. Because Sorgi was showing us some stuff. You know, he was promising. So um, that's the way it would go at every position. And, and uh, another example, um, after the first preseason game, Antoine Bethea, cemented his position as a starter. So the question was asked of the defensive backfield coach and, and Leslie Frazier, who's essentially the coordinator, and saying, hey, uh, you know, do, do we want Bethea in there right away? Or, um, or, or do we want to play him with the, the second group? And if I remember correctly, Tony may have been the one that said, let's, let's get him in there and get his feet wet. He, he's going to make the team. There's no question about that. Let's see how he does with the first group. So in the second preseason game, he's in there with the first group. Those are the decisions that are made after the first preseason game. And and then um, there's a, a part of that meeting where you discuss special teams viability. So the special teams coach now takes center stage and says, I, I need to see the following guys – on special teams. So we need to get them on on every special team, every core four special team, the core four being kickoff, kickoff, return, punt, punt, return. Um, so we need to see David Thornton on every core four. We need to see Gary Brackett on every core four. Um, we need to see Cato June on every core four, um, et cetera. And so they would have what amounted to a depth chart uh, at the end of that meeting. That's a long meeting. That can go anywhere be up to three hours. Um, and then uh, Tony and I, uh, usually the following day, would get together and we'd have our own depth chart. <laughs> and, and so Tony would say, you know what? I think we probably need to give Sorgi a little more time than Rip. <laughs> Let's find out about Sorgi. He's interesting. What do you think? I say I agree. <laughs> so this is this is the double secret probation depth chart. <laughs> right. Well, no, not really. But it, it, it was it was just the a, one the one that matters. It was a cross check. 
I think I think it's more that's the depth chart that actually means something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and all it was doing was apportioning playing time. And so, uh, and we didn't make there there weren't many many differences between what the coaches had and what we had. Uh, it was usually, you know, the, Tony and I were of, of exactly the same mind. You know, this guy Sorgi's really showing us a lot. Bethea's really showing us a lot. Let's let's get their feet wet. Tony was always anxious to have young players get an opportunity to play. And, and so was I, because for every young player you have on the team, it gives you more salary cap room, very honestly, although that, that didn't that didn't enter the equation. I should I should I think we said this in the last show, but I need to reiterate this. We would make every salary cap move in the off season before we ever began OTAs. And so the coaches knew, because I would tell them every year, you cut the squad for the best 53 football players. There are no salary cap issues here, none whatsoever. So don't worry about salary cap. Yep. That's been taken care of. Which is one of the, you know, and maybe it's just for storylines or whatever. But again, with a, you know, the many differences between reality and what's reflected in the media, you know, you you always hear as training camps going through, well, they've got to keep this guy. Now, maybe the other teams didn't do it that way, but certainly with the Colts, it, you know, as you said, it became a non-issue, uh, even though the, the press following the Colts would speculate about, can you afford to keep this guy versus that guy, when it really is not even an issue at that point. No, it's not. I mean, that was just our process. I don't know how other people did it, but that was just our process, and we, we wanted to make – we wanted to be true to what we told the players, which was everybody's going to get a fair evaluation here. It doesn't matter how much money you make or don't make. Would you try to preserve some portion of the cap for things that might happen throughout camp if you know there's a surprise cut on another team? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What kind of percentage just for our uh, sort of fake GM hat on so that if I, this ever happens one day, like do you try to allocate like 3 or 4%, 5%? Is it a percentage thing? Uh, how do you actually handle that? We would go back and, and calculate um, a, a standard, if you will, injured reserve budget. That's basically about, you know, one six-week injury for every game you play. So somewhere between 16 and 18 uh, injured reserve salaries at a median salary. And then uh, what it costs in signing bonus dollars to, to sign the rookies. Uh, because we were always on a cash budget. We always had a cash cap as well as a salary cap. And the cash cap was, uh, as you might imagine, the most important one. That's the one we lived with. Um, right. And so uh, that was anywhere, in, and this is back in 10 and 11, 9, 10, and 11. That's anywhere between 6 and $8 million that you just take off the top before you ever start the process of signing players. That's left in the bank, so to speak. Now, somehow or other, we, 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 we didn't use all of it every year, and somehow or other, it would disappear from the budget the following year. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't spend it, you don't get to keep it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's the federal government e edict. You got to spend your money on FTEs or you lose it. 
Yeah, every year I would argue that we should get that carried over just like cap room, but that argument didn't prevail. In any event, that's what we did. We, we set aside, let's call it $8 million. I, I don't know what the number would be today on a, on a $189 million cap. Well, this year it'll be 175. So it's, it's probably, uh, it's probably somewhere around 5%. Okay. So then how does the preseason game two evaluation differ at all from one, or is it pretty much kind of the, the same process? Same process, except now you're starting to get a feel uh, for who really has a chance to make the team. So let's just say that you went through four running backs and, and you, and you know, there are, um, Three, uh, Dominic Rhodes, Edger, and James, James Mungro, who are, you know, the backfield coach says, you know, these are the three that I think are, are going to make it. Um, I don't know about the other two. And so the question would be then, who of the other two do you play to, to try and get a feel for it? Uh, whether you want to keep four or three or go on the waiver wire to pick up a fourth, um, who's going to be the goal line and short yardage back. Specific position discussions that affect the 53 take place in that meeting uh, after the second preseason game because the third preseason game in our terminology was the dress rehearsal. Uh, the, the the starters were going to play a half and a series in the second half so they could get used to playing the half and going inside and, and, and you know, getting freshened up and adjustments being made and then go out and play another series in the second half. So you're going to limit the time that the backup people played. So, for example, um, Dominic Rhodes and Edger and James would probably get a quarter each in the uh, in the third preseason game, and then James Mungro and somebody else would get the rest of the game. But the Mungro was going to get a lot of the load because we wanted to get him ready to play because he's going to be on the team. And then the special teams function in that meeting after the second game, second preseason game, is a long one because now the special teams coach is saying, well, I, I don't know if I've got a role for Mungro. Where can we use him? So now you start to get into really nuanced discussions. Uh, I'd rather have Jones. Uh, okay, that means we'd have to carry four running backs. So that's a big note that I'm making on my depth chart. How many running backs do we carry? Three or four? Because the fourth guy, the special teams coach, wants. In, in our, our system with Tony and Jim Caldwell was a little less rigid than, than Marv's. Marv's position always was the last player at every position will be the best special teams player. And, uh, and that's just the way it was going to be. So... Uh, Bobby Ross, who's a name that football fans will remember, was our special teams coach in Kansas City my first year there with Marv. And, and, and Bobby 
had to say, you know, at, at, at every position uh, with the last guy. And, and that included the long snapper who uh, really had no position. Uh, we were one of the first to carry along in Kansas City. We were the first to carry a long snapper who had no position. And I remember a discussion that was really funny. <laughs> Marv would said, well, you know, let him work with the linebackers. And, and Rod West, the, who was the coordinator, defensive coordinator and linebacker coach, said, I don't want him. <laughs> said, well, just, just let him work there. He, he can do scout team work. And Rod said, I don't want him. I don't want him in my room. I <laughs> so <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> so the the – the uh, that special teams discussion be, affected how many players you carried at a very at a specific position, and um, and my pet peeve, I never voiced this, um, except with the coordinators and 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 Tony, um, was that I I was always trying to search for a short yardage and goal line back. A big blaster, who who could convert short yards and goal line. Now you have probably six of those a game, and but he has no role uh, on on special teams largely unless he's the personal protector, and and sometimes he's not even big enough to do that. So, um, you know, how do you find a, a room for that guy in the squad? And that that would be a a pretty lengthy discussion. Um, and sometimes you had the guy and sometimes you didn't. We were best on short yards and goal line when we took Dan Klecko, a defensive tackle, and made him the fullback and put him in front of Edgerin. We were really good. That was the year we won the Super Bowl. And, and so it proved that we needed him, but there they had to be another way to find him, <laughs> which, which you know, I, I never focused on. But that's what those discussions would be about. And, um, and so – the the third preseason game would play out. And now in the fourth preseason game, we knew who was going to start. And many of those guys didn't even dress. We took them. If We always played Cincinnati, so it was a short bus trip. No matter at which place it was played, it was two hours. And um, and and the, the Bengals were, were great about that, you know, great hosts. And, and we try to reciprocate. Um, and, uh, and in our case, we wouldn't even dress the starters, um, and everybody else would get to play. So all the backups would play, the key backups would play probably a quarter, and then all the young players would get to play the rest of the game. Now, the Bengals' approach was different. They would play their starters a half. So the score at the end of the half would be Bengals 27, Colts 3, if we were lucky. But it didn't matter because we wanted to see how those young guys stood up against the Bengals starters. It was a great experiment. It was a great test for us. And uh, it, it took a little while for Jim Irsay understood it immediately, but it took a little while for me to explain to the fans and the, and the media why that was happening. So, Bill, 
to me, uh, the way you've explained it, there's sort of two tracks that are parallel, uh, but slightly different. Because on one hand, as you're evaluating growth and deeper insight into how somebody is, you've got the rookies. So, and there's certain expectations for them. But then you have guys on the team who uh, are the, the, the sort of the special team veterans who aren't even necessarily the, the, the you know, first backup and so on and so forth. What, talk, talk about what you need to see from a rookie from day one in training camp versus what is it that you need to see to say, okay, this veteran, who, you know, who has been a good guy, but he's been on the team two years, you know, what do we have to see to actually want to keep them around for the third year? Talk about those two different sets of expectations and what people have to do to fulfill uh, your desire to keep them around. Well, it's really one competition. We, we don't have a desire to keep them around. It's a question of who's better. So uh, I'll give you an example. Um, Justin Snow came in as a rookie from uh, Baylor. Had not been a long snapper at Baylor, but we knew he could do it because I'd seen him do it in practice. He was he was a starting defensive end, so they didn't use him as the long snapper, but I knew he could do it. So he came in, and Bradford Banta, I believe, was was the uh, was the returning veteran, and uh, and in the end, uh, we kept Justin because he was younger, and frankly less expensive. But uh, he was actually a little bit better. The special teams coach at the time wanted to keep Bradford, but we said, no, look, it snows outplayed him. And, and, you know, that's the way it is. Um, in another situation, you might have a, uh, an offensive guard who uh, was, a, was a young guy who, who might have been challenging a veteran like Tony Mandarich who was had injury issues and age issues. But at the end of camp, you know, Howard Mudd said, um, I don't think uh, I don't think this guy's shown enough to, to have us move Tony along. So we're going to we're going to keep Tony. I'm not sure that that's that, that actually that actually happened. I'm just using that as an example. Um, typically. You would have a situation where and, and this is why the process is so important. You'd have a situation where a player would come in like Jeff Saturday, make the team based on what he did in the four preseason games, spend a year as a backup. Howard would find out which position was best for him. He'd stick him in there the following year, move the veteran on, and and that's the way it would go. And, and, and that's the way it's supposed to go. And we did the very same thing in Buffalo. That's why the process is so important. It has to be, it has to be thoughtful. It has to be fact based. It has to be a full throated evaluation. It can't be knee jerk. It can't be I like this guy. It's got to be a thorough process, and the thorough process leads to orderly transition on your squad. I, I guess the only thing I was saying was. Uh, since you're paying veterans more, uh, you know, and they're getting older, uh, was there a, just a, within not comparing them to the rookie, 
uh, or who's going to make the squad. But was there a was there a growth that you wanted to see to keep a guy around for a second or a third year within his, you know that that if he wasn't on an upward tick that he was getting closer to being a backup or a backup getting closer to being a starter that would make it more likely to be, be to be replaced by somebody else because he was not moving in the in the positive direction he was just flatlining. Well, you. you... That rarely happened in camp, and that's a decision you make at the end of the of the regular season. That's where that January meeting comes in. If you had a guy two years and he was flatlining and not making progress, then you probably let him go at that point. Okay, so you, you know by then. Okay, so it wasn't. It, yeah, and don't forget, salary doesn't mean anything at this point. We've we've covered that base. No, I I agree. I just meant now he's going to be around for another year or two to you know to have to figure into it, but. Uh, I wasn't thinking you'd keep them one way or the other, but okay. So, so that goes back to aside. If, if if what you're if what you're asking is what, what what's the timeline for for evaluation of long term growth? It's three years. You know, at the end of three years, whether a guy's going to going to have a long term future or not. There you go. So, uh, thank you, Bill Polian, because you asked my question and gave the answer. <laughs> It's always nice. That happens a lot behind the scenes as well, guys. Yeah, so that's a good thing. <laughs> hey, one quick thing before we jump into the final meeting. How close through the preseason game process are you monitoring what's happening with other teams in terms of seeing guys that might be potential cuts that you might want to add? How closely – I know we touched on this a little bit in the scouting, but, I mean, at this phase, how aware are you of everything that's going on around the league with potentially players that could become available who might be useful? Very, 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 very. Um, <clears throat> the pro scouting staff has an assignment, has scouting assignments that they're uh, that they're uh, doing. Uh, they're out every week at three and four games a week, um, looking at the tape when they come back, uh, compiling a list of players to claim. It's called the claim list. <laughs> logically, very logically. Yeah, seems to make sense. That's fair. It would be on a closed board in the pro scouting office. And uh, after we finished the, uh, the day after we finished this, our own cult squad evaluation, we would have a formal meeting uh, with the, with the pro scouting staff to cover the claim list. Um, who did, who did we think would, would come out? That's a little bit of divining rod. there, trying to figure out who the other people are going to cut. Uh, but each scout is assigned so many teams in the NFL. So they're expert on that. They have good opinions on it. And then um, who of that group would we want to claim? And in the meeting after the third preseason game in the Tony Bill meeting, we would say to one another, maybe even bring the coordinators in, and, and, and we would say to one another, um, who do we think, what positions do we think we need to improve? Because it stands to reason that people you're going to get on claims, are, you know, you're not. There's one rare exception which I'll cover in a second, but you're not going to get people on claims, generally speaking, that are are, um, you know, going to be starters. You're adding depth to your team. So the question is, at what positions are we satisfied with our depth? At what positions do we need depth? So. We would have that outlined, and and Tony uh, would often, and Jim would often attend those formal pro meetings, claim meetings, 
uh, those began after the second preseason game. And after the third preseason game, you've got to be ready to go. You, you, the claim list is, is virtually final at that point. There were two position groups that stood alone. The first was special teams. Now, we didn't ever have any problems with punters or, or, or kickers. Um, those, were, those positions were handled in the offseason. As I mentioned, Justin Snow was the long snapper for as long as we were there. But key core people on special teams we would be interested in. So the special teams coach would have the ability to say, um, I, I like Terrence Wilkins as a receive, as a return man. I think he can make our team. Um, I want him on the team. So if he's the fifth receiver, so be it. Uh, we're not going to get better than him on the wire. That's the phrase that's used, meaning the waiver wire. Uh, or he would say, I'm not satisfied with our return man, and I think we ought to be looking for one. So he was a he was a standalone. I'm not satisfied with my personal protector. I think we should be looking for somebody there, either internally or externally. Um, so he had his own uh, his own needs that he would enunciate and we would follow. And then Howard Mudd, the offensive line coach, because of his iconic status, Hall of Fame coach status, um, was. Uh, you know, uh, uh, an island unto himself. So he would just say, I, I got the eight guys I want. Don't worry about it. Uh, whatever you're going to add to the practice squad, that's fine. Um, and, and Or he would say, no, no, no I, I don't like the eighth guy. I think we, we need better. Uh, so that's how we that's how we approached it. Now, there's an interesting, really interesting story that tells you exactly why you need to be prepared. Um, whoever had Kansas City, I can't remember who the scout was. It might have been Kevin Rogers at the time, said said to me and to Tom Telesco and Chris Polian, you got to look at this guy, Ryan Lilja. I don't think he's going to make their team. He's too small for what they want, but he's perfect for us. So we all looked at the tape. This was after the second preseason game. And we said, wow, this guy is pretty special. He can do everything we want. The problem is he's six foot one and weighs about 290 pounds, which is way too small for a guard. Maybe even for us, <laughs> but way too small for most people. So I took the tape to Howard. I said, take a look. So Howard came back and said, get this guy. Let's trade for him. So we discussed whether or not we should trade for him. And we said, no, let's don't trade for him. Let's sit tight because we think he's going to come out. So Howard is like a cat on a hot tin roof on, 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 on <laughs> cut down day. <laughs> he wanted Lulji in the worst way. And of course he was right. <laughs> and, and we were saying, don't worry about it. We'll get him on a claim. This is, you know, we don't have to give up anything here. So sure than heck, here comes Ryan Lilja on the waiver wire. We couldn't get the claim in fast enough. We got him, and he ended up starting, I think, at left guard for us for four or five years. Um, and later on, both Carl Peterson and Dick Vermeil. Carl called me and Dick called Howard and said, 
damn it, did we make a mistake? We thought we could get them through waivers. You dang guys were out there. <laughs> you know? So th- that leads me to the next step, which is the final piece in the puzzle is determining who you put on waivers in order to get them through to the practice squad. Who of the young players do you put on waivers in order to get them through to the practice squad? And who do you put on waivers hoping they won't be claimed? We didn't do much of the latter at all. We were very conservative. So before you get to that, could could we take a step back? And uh, so this is prior to that decision. Could you talk about uh, the dynamics of that fourth post-fourth preseason game meeting where, you know, the each guy's making a case for what he needs? Because it's, it's a little different. It's not just this guy's good or this guy's good. It's, you know, how many guys and so on. So could you could you share that with everybody? Because I think it's a really interesting uh, methodology that you use. Well, I mean, you know, you're going to – you set the numbers. Tony set the numbers, generally speaking, so you'd carry – um, you know, two quarterbacks, one on the practice squad, uh, four running backs, uh, five wide receivers, um, sometimes two or three tight ends, depending on how the how the third tight end fit on on uh, on uh, special teams, uh, and eight offensive linemen, maybe nine if you had an injury or something like that, but usually eight, and then and then two would go to the practice squad. Uh, on defense, it was always the same, seven to eight. Off, uh, defensive linemen, a minimum of six linebackers, a minimum of seven DBs, maybe eight, and, and you'd balance it off depending on on how many defensive linemen or linebackers you'd carry. So it was really the 50 to 53rd guys were the third tight end, uh, the, the fourth running back, um, the sixth linebacker, the eighth defensive lineman, and the eighth defensive back, you choose, you know, between you'd pick three to four of those eight. So, uh, so that was pretty. That was pretty standard year in and year out. Yes. Yeah, and some of that came down to scheme and and so on and so forth. Um, okay. So, all right. Now, now that we know how you know that got determined, uh, take us through the strategy with you know with the cuts and how you would you try and uh, make the system work for you. Well, the rules are as follows. There are two rules that that come into play here. The first is that any vested veteran uh, who is on the team on opening day has his contract guaranteed for the full season. So if you have a vested veteran that you think, hmm, I'd like to have him as a backup, but I don't want to guarantee him the whole season, then you have to wave him through and bring him back after the after the first game. So if if we have any listeners who are fantasy football people and they see one of their favorite veterans get waived just prior to the cut to 53 and uh and then come back that's the reason. They just don't want to guarantee him for the whole season. The second part of it is players that go to the practice squad have to clear waivers first. So any player that you want to add to the practice squad, assuming not the rules this year, but assuming the old rules where he had to be first or second or third year player, um, non-vested veteran, uh, 
those guys have to go through waivers and then you can sign them after they clear waivers. So now the question is, um, here's where your, your last question comes into play. Is the sixth, the sixth linebacker you want to keep, <coughs> excuse me, a rookie who you'd rather have on the practice squad, but you're worried that he'll get claimed? That's a that's a tough decision. And that's that's a that's a Tony, Bill, Chris, Tom, uh sometimes Jim Ursay management decision. That's the that's the that's the management group makes that decision with great deference to the head coach. So you know, because Tony had an affinity for young players and believed that they that they added value and life and verve and excitement to the squad. Um, he would tend to keep the, uh, the the young kid and take a chance on losing the rookie and then flop the next week if we had to bring the veteran back, put the rookie onto the practice squad. He Tony did not like to lose promising practice squad players, if at all possible, to um, – a waiver claim and the waiver claims because of the increase in pro scouting and the amount of information that's out there and tape that's out there, uh, you know, are up well above 60 every year. They were lower this year, but they're normally well above 60 around the league. So you're going to lose two, maybe three, four guys on waiver claims. um, If you, if you put them out there. So, that was a a, a loose sleep decision, <laughs> and, and <laughs> it, you have to wait a long time. The waiver wire goes in at noon, and it's not until somewhere around eight o'clock at night that you find out whether your guys have cleared or whether or not you got someone that you that you claimed. So that's a long that's a long eight hours, a lot of pacing. Well, you got to get your steps. I mean, that's a good way to get steps. <laughs> yes, it's it's the league helping you with health. I mean, come on. <laughs> Well, you're you know you're you've always got those insights, Scott, that you know can can turn a negative into a positive. So yeah. Uh, uh, so so Bill, uh, I don't want to pass on one other important thing because we're talking about process here. Uh, you know, we're talking about movement of guys, but uh, you know, I want to talk about actually cutting people and what that means. You know, in terms of guys. At the very least, you've been around uh, since you drafted them or signed them as free agents. Uh, you've been through the OTAs. You've been through mini camps. You've been through training camps. These guys are all busting their asses to make it. You have veterans who, you know, as you say, going into a certain year, just may not making the kind of progress. But no matter who it is, it's not an easy thing uh, telling a guy he's cut from the football team. Uh, because, you know, some of them, uh, you, you know, very well that this is the end of the, the, their dream in life. Uh, you know, others, you think they have a chance to continue, but not right as of that minute. So talk to us about the procedure for informing guys they've been cut, the various levels they fall into regarding your degree of ongoing interest in them, and the advice you give each guy based on that future interest uh, to 
so that you're not misleading somebody, you're giving, a, you know, you're, you're encouraging one you should, but it's very personal. You take it very seriously. It's, it's, not, it's not something you do in a cold-hearted way. Take us through that day, you know, when the guys are getting a knock on the door and uh, bring your playbook. Well, um, that doesn't happen because they're not in camp any, any longer. Um, but they, they're in hotels or, or, you know, most of them. We keep the team in one hotel during the preseason. So um, Tony would tell everybody on the night before the final preseason game, listen, we'll be making the cuts on Friday. The cuts don't have to be in until Saturday, but we'll do it on Friday. So have your phone handy. Be around. Uh, whether you made the team or you haven't made the team, um, we need to call you and, and get your status squared away. So be be uh, alert to a call. Um, and then um, every year I would remind all the staff, the training staff, the equipment staff, um, the medical staff, uh, and certainly our own personnel staff, the likelihood is we're ending somebody's dream today. And, uh, and, and so take that into consideration. You know, be professional, but also be humane about this. And it's hard to, it's hard to end somebody's dream. I mean, it just is. Uh, these kids are the best from grade school all the way through college. And now, all of a sudden, for the first time in their lives, someone is saying to them, you're not good enough so, for whatever reason. So um, th- we, we try to take that approach from, from a humanistic standpoint, if you will. Um, so then the, the, someone from the personnel staff would make the calls. We would do it in a, in a, in a pecking order. Um, the guys who we were not going to keep on the practice squad would get the first calls, and they would be told, come to the office. Um, they would see Tony. Uh, they, would, they, they were given a form when they reported to the office that had to be filled out by the equipment man, by the trainer, by the doctor, um, and they had to sign certain forms for the league um, that said that, that they – you know, we're given all their rights, et cetera, in, in release. And then um, they would get to see me at the end of that process. And with those guys, I would, I would try to say as, as, as charitably as possible, listen, you know, you're not going to make our team and, and we probably don't have room for you at the moment on the practice squad. But there's always the possibility that you will be claimed. And I hope I hope you are. Um, and if you want to continue chasing the dream, then by all means do so. I would know basically what their degree status was. And so if a guy had his degree, you know, my response would or my, my advice would be, listen, you've gotten your degree. If you want to go pursue professional football in Canada or, you know, get on the tryout circuit in the NFL, by all means do so, you know. Make sure that you give yourself every chance. If they they didn't have their degree, you know, I'd say my advice would be go back and finish your degree. 
um, that the likelihood of a long career in professional football probably is not in the cards for you. So it's really important that you finish. Um, and then, and Tony would give the same advice. Um, so then those fellows would leave and then the next group to come in would go through the exact same process, except the discussion with Tony and I would be different. Um, Tony would say to them, we want to keep you on the practice squad and we think you have a future with us. We just don't have room for you uh, on the 53 and Bill will explain to you what the process is. So then they, they would go through the, the whole, uh, outboarding process, if you will, and, and then come to me. And then I, I would say to them, look, we, we want to keep you on the practice squad, but we have to put you on waivers in order to do that. So you're going to go to Chris or Tom and sign a futures contract with us, uh, which will be activated if you clear waivers. Now, I'm probably telling a tale out of school, but the statute of limitations has probably run on that. <laughs> I, I was about to warn my client to stop speaking at this point. But go ahead. <laughs> I haven't heard it, <laughs> but but the the uh, so they would in in a lot of cases want to talk to their agents, and then we would we would discuss things with their agents, and and the agents are really good; they understand exactly what the process is, and everybody kind of does it the same way. So, and you know, I would always say to them, "Look, selfishly, I hope you're not claimed." For your sake, I hope you are claimed. But um, if you're not, there's a home for you here. So be prepared to come to work tomorrow um, someplace. And and so they would go back and then we'd, we'd be in touch with them when and if they cleared waivers or if they didn't, we had to call them and say, listen, you, you, you haven't cleared. The Bears have claimed you. Uh, and, and people from the Bears will be in touch with you if they have not been already. So that's the way that process worked. And then if it was a veteran that we were cutting, that was a little more difficult because you get to know those guys. I mean, they're people who, to one degree or another, have bled for you and, and given you good service. So those would be the last people we'd talk to. Um, and, you know, that can get a little emotional from time to time, especially if it's a if it's a guy that, you know, you have a long relationship with. But in their case, um, most of them know that that they still have at least another year left in the NFL and their benefits stay in place for a year. And, you know, the likelihood is that they're probably going to get a job somewhere along the line. Um, so. That that was the process, and it, it took it took most of the day, and uh, and then obviously we had to put the wire in the next day, and um, and then wait for the claims to clear. In the meantime, the pro scouts and the pro executives are getting, or the personnel executives are getting calls, um, you know, night and day from agents trying to place guys that they know have already been cut. And the agents also will reveal to the media who've, who've been cut. So uh, we wanted to make sure, that's why we did it on Friday. We wanted to make sure that everybody knew before somebody in the media speculated about them being cut. Um, 
that that to me would be the worst thing that would would happen. And then occasionally, I, I would have a, uh, you know, uh, an agent would say, "Would you mind talking to so and so's parents?" And and I, I, you know, I always would. And you shoot straight, but you try to do it in a, in a, in, you know, in the in the most humane way you possibly can. And and you know, the relationships with veterans are the ones that are the hardest to, to, to end because, as I say, you, you become friendly with them. Um, they're your teammate. They're, they're not employees. They're your teammate. And, and you know, you get to know them. You get to know their families. Uh, it, it's difficult. And then occasionally, you know, you have guys who, and this happens in February and March, not in, not in September, but you have guys who, who, who decide, hey, I, I played four or five years um, it's time for me to move on. And in more than a few cases, I've had guys come in and, and or call me after they've left and said, listen, would you write mind writing a recommendation for me to law school or, or to business school? And obviously, I'm honored to do it. And and, and it just it, it, it reinforces that the way that we did things uh, registered with the with the players, which is really what our goal was in the first place. Were there many players you uh, maintained relationships with uh, over the years after they were cut? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. See, many of them, uh, obviously, at reunions and things like that, Hall of Fame ceremonies, uh, Ring of Honor ceremonies, where typically they'll bring back the whole team. Uh, But, uh, you know, uh, I had a, a note from a, a player for whom I, I wrote a recommendation to law school to who who sent me an email and said that he'd passed the bar exam. And so I, I, you know, those things happen. It's always got to feel good. Not not frequently, but 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 enough to to make you think that, you know, what you're doing means something, besides just wins and losses. Right, right, which is always the important thing in life. Well, hey, well, I think on that note, we will push our way into the audible today. And I think I'm going to pull just an audible of an audible today with my question. And it's going to be a two-parter. So this, I feel like, happens. We've talked a little bit about espionage. But, like, how often when in the sort of pre-COVID world and, God willing, in the post-COVID world, when fans could go to training camp, how often do you think teams would send sort of advanced scouts to watch what's happening with the other teams. And also as a Washington football team fan, I feel like the Eagles have done this to us every year where we'll inevitably cut someone. They will sign them for week one and then they just beat our brains in. Thank God it didn't happen this year with Richard Rogers, but it seems to happen all the time. How often do you feel like those things happen? And then how effective are those brain picking sessions when you're pulling in somebody who's just recently been cut? Um, well, you're asking two different questions, so I'll answer them two, in order. Two-parter. Two yeah, two-parter. Uh, the first is the first is that um, the rule, the league rule is if the club charges admission for a practice or a scrimmage, you can send scouts to it. And everybody does that. You might remember when the Redskins charged admission to their their training camp practices. Oh, I have paid it. Everybody had people there. 
another very popular I, move. I, I will admit this on the podcast. I've paid it many times. No, don't tell me you were, that, that, don't that, tell me you were happy to pay it, though. <laughs> there was a time, but now not so much. That's under the heading of scouting, and, and it's allowed. Um, the other covert espionage is not allowed, frowned upon greatly. And uh, while it's never happened, I think if someone was caught, they, they would be just short of Nathan Hale in terms of uh, what, what repercussions there would be. Um, once upon a time, uh, a guy that I worked for with another club when I was, a, you know, a shave tail, not the Kansas City Chiefs, by the way, uh, ordered me to, to, to go do that. Uh, and, and I politely said no and went to the general manager and told the general manager, look, this is what he asked me to do and I'm not going to do it, just so you know. Uh, you know, that, that, that's really, really frowned upon within the, within the industry. Uh, not to say it doesn't happen, but it, but it's really frowned upon, at least in my experience. Um, as to uh, claiming a guy to pick his brain, George Allen was the first person that I heard of doing that, and he did it frequently. Um, and you know, you pick, bring the guy in, uh, pick his brain. You got to pay him for the week, and then you let him go the next week. Um, the coaches that I were with, including Marv, who had worked for George Allen, um, didn't think it was worth very much. If, if it was a quarterback that you were getting, or if it was a defensive signal caller, maybe a safety or a middle linebacker, um, you might glean something. But you'd be surprised. Most players don't know the big picture. They know their position and and not much more. So, you know, if you if you pick up a player from, let's say, that the Colts are playing the Redskins next week, or the Washington football team, I should say. Let's to make it easy for me, let's call it the Ravens. The Colts are playing right. the Ravens next week, and and we want to claim a guy from the Ravens offense to know what their code words are. You know, the Ravens are changing the code words. <laughs> They're not going to use the same code words. So, uh, and, and now you don't have to do it anyway because you can get the code words off the television tape. Because the center or one of the guards is is miked, and so all you have to do is have your um, ha have your uh, your tech people filter out the sound, and you get everything. It used to drive us crazy because we used so much verbiage at the line of scrimmage. Uh, Jeff Saturday somehow uh, his mic would break every week. Um, you know, Peyton would be really upset about it. We had to change the the the, um, the the verbiage every week, so um, that part you can get without bringing a player in. So I, we didn't do a lot of it. I know it's done on occasion. I don't think quite as frequently as it used to because more information is out there electronically. All right, here here's my audible question, but it, it, there's a little backstory in our last show and in. In a display of incredible modesty, 
Bill Polian took umbrage with favorably being compared to a billionaire genius. So this time, Bill, no analogies, no metaphors, no similes, nothing. I'm just going to ask it straight up. But it does ask for a comparison. If you, if, because I wanted to try to understand how truly subjective versus objective the process we just described. So if you took, and, and let's just say, uh, you know, five of the GM head coach combinations that you respect most in the league. And all of you started with 90 and we're, and we're going down to the 53. How similar, and this is scheme aside, forget scheme. How similar do you think you would be to one another just in your evaluation of those players, their future, uh, and so on and so forth, how closely would those 53s align with one another? Um, I would say probably 65 to 70% would align. The other 35% reacts to scheme, it is directly related to scheme. So, for example, uh, let's use Baltimore as an example. Uh, they want corners who can cover man-to-man. They'd like them to be long and have, have long arms, but they'll take smaller guys. Man-to-man coverage is important. With us, it was not as important. So we would keep different guys as opposed to uh, what Baltimore might keep. So that says something about your level of faith in your peers because, yeah, if you absent out scheme, you're saying they generally each team, or at least the, the ones that are the, the, the best ones, are good enough that in terms of valuing who the 53 are that are best for their team, they're going to wind up. And if you were had their scheme, you would have taken their players and done the same thing. So that even though there's there's so much – uh, that that isn't measurable, even though this is human beings we're dealing with. Uh, obviously, the, both the people that are doing the job are very good at their jobs, and with everything we have now in terms of uh, evaluation, that's become very sophisticated, and it and it generally yields the best product. Oh, without question, and I I, I would disagree with the idea that it's not measurable. The fact that you're giving an educated opinion based on years and years of experience, you don't get to professional football unless you've had uh, or a position of, of authority in professional football, unless you've had years of experience. Um, it, it, you're, that, that's, that's not off the wall. It's, it's not subjective. You're trying to make it as objective as you can but, you know, that, that's an educated opinion. It's not an uneducated opinion. It, 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 a machine could not do it any better because right. the human being brings intuition and experience to that that the machine cannot. No, yeah, that, that in fact was my point. Even, even the things that are not um, easily reducible to numbers, 
the 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 experience level and the insight that folks at that level have in the NFL is such that uh, they can make an evaluation without a stopwatch, uh, you know, with, without a broad jump, without a, a testing arm strength, where they can get a sense of the whole player of everything from, you know, his willingness to sacrifice, his, his, his desire to be a good team, everything rolled up in the ball. They, they really can make that decision, you know, which, which should actually also with what we were talking about with, with the guys where it's sad that they don't make the team, but that should, should give them some solace that this was not uh, haphazard. This was not unfair that this was a very uh, successful professional evaluation, and they just got to the to the level where their their ability, their talent just couldn't carry them past that. So, uh, you know, that should make those guys actually feel better about things. They weren't. It wasn't just d- dumb luck that they didn't make it, and other guys did. No, I'm still gonna feel pretty bad. I'm still feeling bad if I don't make the team. Well, keep keep this in mind though. So, keep this in mind. Don't lose don't lose the lessons of the episode that we did last week. The measurables, the height, weight, speed, the test scores, the personnel evalu- the personality evaluations, the psychological evaluations, uh all of those factor into the decision of how you get to the 90. All of that's been baked into the cake before you ever set foot on the field. So those do play a role, a, a, a very important role. They're entry, they're barriers to entry. And unless you can pass that, that examination, you're, you're not going to get on the field. So that makes the evaluation much more scientific. That's why Bill Parcells always says, if you make one exception, you'll end up with a team full of exceptions. You don't want exceptions to the barriers to entry. So all of that's baked into the cake, as I say. And now everybody's equal. Everybody's on equal footing. And now you're trying to judge them as football players. Right. Right. Very true. All right. Scott, yeah. What do you got, Rick? I just, I just wanted to say, let me know. We're flipping positions here. Let me know whether you are going to be the silver linings playbook guy or I am. Right? Let, who's going to who's going to be the positive spin or whatever Bill says? I think we should we should oh, show I, by show. We should go ahead. I'm Pat Salatano for life. I got my Deshaun jersey fully ready. Hey, so we're <laughs> going to end on this today. So, Bill, are you joining the revolution? Are you taking your clubs in today and getting them all cut to the same length like I did a year ago? Uh, no, I am not because uh, uh, you know. I'm so bad that I don't think any and there no method could help me at this point in time. I'm 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 on the edge of despair. I'm telling you, all my friends who thought I was crazy when I followed it and did it and got significantly better, I cannot recommend this enough. On the heels of the US Open yesterday, everybody should do it. It makes life a lot easier. All right. I'll have to talk to you about it. I'm open to it. Well, all right, gang. Thank you again so much for an awesome show today. Uh, As always, if you have questions or things you want us to hit on in the uh, Audible or any topics you want us to consider, please hit us up on Twitter at IFBillPolian, and we'll be sure to do it. And for all you out there, if you want to read The Golfing Machine, it's a good week to do it. And if your game doesn't improve, 
yourself, Scott. <laughs> Blame me. <laughs> All right, guys. Stay safe, everyone. Uh, yep, absolutely. Be well. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.